Welcome to the show, everybody. So dramatic. I always feel like that's so dramatic. How could I come in all jovial and finger guns when I have a ramp up like that? Anyways, after the supposed hottest days and weeks and months ever recorded in history and the unfolding disaster in Hawaii, many climate activists are lining up to pressure the Biden administration to declare a climate emergency. How likely is this declaration? When might it happen? And what would it mean for America if such an emergency is declared? Also, we're going to take a look at a new Institute for Energy Research paper that examines the potential of achieving net zero. We're talking about all of this and more on episode 411 of the In The Tank podcast. Welcome to the In The Tank Podcast. I know. Thank you. Love you, too. I love you, too. Um, as always, I'm your host, Donald Kendall. Joining me, I've got a full crew. I've got Jim Lakely, VP of the Heartland Institute. How are you doing today? Good, sir. I'm doing well. You know, uh, football season is right around the corner. We're about a month away from kickoff the NFL season. And my Steelers are going to have a big year. So I'm getting pretty excited about it. Other than that, just chilling. Sure, Jim. Sure. When they go 0-3, don't come crying to me. Chris Talgo, editorial director here at the Heartland Institute. How are you doing today, good sir? Doing good. Like Jim, I'm looking forward to a great NFL season. I think uh, the Bears are going to go 17-0. I think Josh Fields, Justin Josh Fields, Fields. <laughs> Justin Fields, excuse me, <laughs> uh-huh. is going to be uh, the unanimous MVP. And I think the uh, Bears defense is going to let... Oh um, maybe a touchdown per game Dude, maybe. everyone's everyone's just drinking different flavors of kool-aid on this podcast also joining us linnea lucan yep. make sure yes uh research fellow with the arthur b robinson center on climate and environmental policy here at the heartland institute how are you doing today good and once again the longest title of anyone um i uh yeah uh I'm doing all right. I am uh, waiting to be served my indictment since we're just indicting everybody this week. (laughs) Uh, So we'll see how that goes. Yes, I think I've got six or seven lined up. So I think I've got Trump beat. But uh, before we get going into that topic, which I do want to talk about a little bit, I do have to put that message out there to audio only listeners that are catching the show on a Friday or later on iTunes. And if you are catching us on iTunes, Good on you. Leave us a review. That'd be greatly appreciated. But you could also join our show a day earlier, Thursdays at noon central time, where we are live streaming on Facebook and YouTube and Rumble and Twitter or X, whatever you want to call it, where you can join the conversation, throw your comments and questions in the chat. Maybe we'll show your comment on the screen. Maybe we'll address your questions on the fly. We also have that super chat functionality enabled in case you want to support the show that way. It's a great way to support the show and guarantee that your comment or question is read on the air. Also, if you don't have any money and you have a few seconds, you could help out the show just by hitting the like button, sharing this content, subscribing if you haven't already, or just leaving a comment under the video. All these things help break through the big tech algorithms that prevent content like this from being shown to more people. Jim Lakely, what are we, three weeks away from the big benefit dinner? What do you have to say about that? Well, you're muted, so you're not saying much. I am muted because I was typing something to Andy in the in the private no chat. No need to me. explain. No need to explain. Go ahead. Uh, benefit right. dinner. 
But yes, uh, Friday, September 8th, it's uh, the Heartland Institute's 39th anniversary benefit dinner. Uh, our featured speaker is the great John Stossel. Uh, he's been doing fantastic work for decades. Um, he's actually now kind of out, out on his own with something called Stossel TV. Um, I was reminded actually the other day, um, writing up some new promotion material for John Stossel, uh, that he had a program or probably I think still has a program called Stossel in the Classroom in which he provides um, liberty and libertarian oriented materials to public schools so that they, they can be deprogrammed. If they're lucky enough, it's probably pretty rare, but if they're lucky enough to have an open-minded teacher in a public, public school system. So uh, he's going to be our featured speaker. He has done a lot of work with Heartland in the past, uh, and we'll, I'm certainly uh, will think he'll do some in the future as well, including this benefit dinner. So it's here in Chicago at the Chicago Marriott uh, Hotel at um, just off of O'Hare Airport. So if you're from out of town, it's, it's very convenient for that. Uh, it's a fantastic ballroom that we have. And uh, we hope to see a lot of the listeners and viewers of this podcast there. Yeah. And uh, everyone that is uh, their face is shown on screen will be there. Andy in the background. Don't show your face. Just nod yes or shake your head no. Are you going to be there? He's, he's nodding his head, folks. So he will be there in case you want to come not to see Stossel or any other like important people. But Andy, if you want to go to the benefit dinner. So it's another week, and it's another set of Trump indictments. Uh, what more can we even say about this at this point? I mean, we've talked about this three different times already. Are we just going to say the same things over and over again every time there's an indictment? On indictment number 20, is there going to be anything new to say about this uh, about this topic? But there is a New York Times article that I put in the show notes where the author sums it up pretty nicely, which is kind of surprising to say, considering it's the New York Times I'm talking about, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, he writes, yet most Americans made up their minds about Mr. Trump long before prosecutors like Fanny T. Willis or Jack Smith weighed in, polls have shown. He is, depending on your perspective, a serial lawbreaker finally being brought to justice or a victim of persecution by partisans intent on keeping him out of office. The Georgia indictment, powerful as it is in its language, has been priced into the market, as the Wall Street types would put it. So I think that this guy generally has it right. Um, if anything, you know, I, I think that it's getting more and more. I'm getting more and more confident that this is all just a circus act. And the more indictments that pile up, the more rings in the in the in the circus. That's basically how I'm looking at it. And like, I just can't imagine somebody that was like, you know, after the first two indictments, I thought it was all BS. But now after the third and fourth, I'm starting to change my mind on Trump. Jim, what are your thoughts on this? Oh, my God. Donnie, not you two. <laughs> not you two. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, this this is a travesty. And every time I think that it can't get worse and that we become more of a banana republic and other bananas added to the bunch. I mean, <laughs> exactly. You know, and, and oh, by the way, and it's supposedly just fine that the uh, the charges were released online accidentally before the grand jury even voted to hand up this indictment. That was, so so the fix wasn't in. So we're also to believe that. that that's what I mean by every time I think it can't get worse. It gets worse all the time. But this this um, this indictment in Georgia is probably the most ridiculous and tragic might be a word for it of all of the indictments against uh, Donald Trump. Uh, this is basically criminalizing a legal theory now uh, for, for Trump to win the election. Now, it was a long shot legal theory and it was to throw up as much doubt um, as possible into the integrity of the election to throw the selection of the president under the constitution to the House of Representatives, which would, since it was uh, 
dominated by uh, Republicans, of course, still is now, they probably would have picked Trump president um, instead of Biden. But this is not unprecedented. Now, bear with me. Um, almost this exact scenario took place in the election of 1876. Uh, so let me know if any of this stuff sounds familiar to you guys. Uh, the Democrat, Sam Tilden, he won the popular vote um, 51% to 48%, which is about the uh, margin of, of uh, victory in the popular vote for Joe Biden. There were allegations of fraud, election violence, and other methods of disenfranchisement. South Carolina, for instance, reported that 101% of eligible voters voted in the 1876 election, which of course was impossible. Uh, the Democrat governor of Oregon disqualified one of the uh, Republican electors to uh, select president, the, the president in Congress on sketchy grounds and replaced him with a Democrat one. Electors showed up in Congress with certificates signed by Democrats and claimed they were the legitimate electors. And then some from the same, same state showed up with certificates signed by Republicans that said they were the legitimate electors. And that's one of the, uh, the charges, I think, in one of the other indictments against Donald Trump, that that was an illegal act. So Democrats, they claimed fraud in that 1876 election. A shot was actually fired at the home of Rutherford B. Hayes while he was there, apparently sitting down to dinner um, while this was all going on. Ulysses S. Grant, who did not want to run for re-election, uh, which is kind of where all this chaos happened, he would have been uh, re-elected easily. Um, he strengthened the troop presence in Washington, D.C., just in case some, some crazy riots or something might happen, which, well, again, does that sound familiar? The Democrats in charge of Congress famously refused to do that in, uh, in the case here in 2020. Uh, so, so that's the kind of the chaos that the Trump team wanted. And, you know, you can say what you want about it, whether it's a good thing to do, a bad thing to do. But it is a legal strategy that has history behind it, and it uses the Constitution as its guide. Now, this is not to call that criminal. A legal theory to challenge an election, a criminal act, is insane. And this is why we were becoming a banana republic, because it's not. So, um, so yet, in this indictment from Georgia... After listing, after it basically is listing all of Trump's challenges to the legitimacy of the process in Georgia, and he did so in other states, which is entirely legal to do, the indictment ends each one of these 161 counts with the words, this was an overt act in furtherance of the conspiracy. So, so guys, let, let me know if you think this stuff is criminal activity. In the indictment, it says Donald Trump tweeting his followers to watch, quote, hearings from Atlanta on the Georgia election overturn. Um, and he, he urged them to watch the coverage of that on One American News Network and something called the Right Side Broadcasting Network. This was an overt act in furtherance of the conspiracy, according to the indictment. Um, he also uh, tweeted that Brian Kemp, the Georgia Secretary of State, should resign because, he re because Kemp refused to admit that Trump won big. This was an overt act in furtherance of the conspiracy, according to the indictment. Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, he texted the chief investigator for the Georgia Secret Secretary of State asking, quote, is there a way to speed up the Fulton County signature verification process in order to have the results in before January 6th? This was an act in furtherance of the conspiracy. Well, one, more, one more example. Meadows uh, also arrived in Cobb County, Georgia, and said he wanted to observe the ballot auditing process, which was going on. This is apparently not, quote unquote, open to the public, according to the indictment. But just asking to do that is, quote, an overt act in, further, in furtherance of the conspiracy. Now, in what world is asking questions or asking to observe the validation of the election in the state of Georgia a criminal act? If, if this was a criminal act, um, 
you know, that celebrity video we played a couple weeks ago, um, urging the electors that were going to Congress in 2016 to not vote for Trump. That is also an overt act in furtherance of a, the conspiracy of Hillary Clinton to steal the 2016 election. Stacey Abrams, the longtime fake governor of Georgia, said for years that she had the election stolen from her. That is also an act in furtherance with a conspiracy to steal an election. And you know, you, I'm a little older than you guys. I was about your age, Donnie, when uh, the, tw the 2000 election came around. And, um, you know, Bush sued because Gore uh, in Florida tried to have the have a recount, but only in Democrat counties where it would be possible for him to win. So Bush had to sue to stop that, get a recount for the entire state. And he won narrowly, but he actually won. That would also be a criminal act, according to this indictment. And I'm going to tell you why all of this all of this matters and then we'll throw it out to other people. There was a story in The Hill today or this week that, um, you know, that a majority of voters, 53 percent, think that Trump did something illegal. Daily News uh, had a story. Uh, Trump plunges to 35 percent favorability, 50, 53 percent back the indictments against against Trump. Quinnipiac poll, 54 percent of all voters and 57 percent of independents think Trump should be criminally prosecuted. And so that that's what this is about. It, it's to convince, you know, the, the old cliche where there's smoke, there's fire. This this is fake smoke. This this isn't smoke at all. It's there's no fire whatsoever. These are not crimes. But the point of it, the intention of this is to get Trump is to get enough people in the, in the public to believe there must be something here. He must have done something criminal. Um, while at the same time, of course, there are. Uh, very strong allegations of genuine criminal activity involving what would be Trump's opponent in the 2024 election that are completely ignored. So this is this is why I wanted to start off talking about this because I wanted to get all that out. Um, I'm 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 a little madder than I'm actually expressing <laughs> on this podcast, believe it or not. No way, you know, because this is insane. This, this this we cannot have an America when this kind of stuff goes on, where I, where one side can challenge all they want. And, and, and Hillary Clinton can say for years that the, the election was stolen from me. And that's not in that's not in furtherance of some sort of conspiracy, a criminal conspiracy. That's just an opinion. Trump is allowed to say that that that, that he thinks that the election was stolen from him and to take steps within the bounds of the Constitution, actually put into the Constitution for challenging elections and not have it be a crime. But it is a crime because, well. I'm so, I keep being told it doesn't exist, but the deep state does not want Donald Trump to be president. And frankly, they don't want the people who would support and vote for Donald Trump to have any say in the way this country is run. Yeah, you know, I started off this uh, this segment saying, you know, what more can we say? Apparently quite a bit, if, uh, <laughs> if you're asking Jim to comment on this. Chris, is the is the corporate media just having a field day? Like, is this just their <laughs> Are you kidding me? Jubilee That's all they, that is all they are talking about 24-7 on the usual suspects, MSNBC, CNN, ABC, NBC, CBS. They are just covering this thing to the tail. I mean, just, just nonstop, nonstop, right. every single angle you can think of. Uh, you know, I agree with what Jim said. Uh, I also think this is just about trying to, you know, wrangle uh, Trump's campaign into so much legal, you know, maneuverings that he's unable to, uh, you know, campaign during the primaries because he's now got four trials that are supposed to occur uh, right during the uh, primary uh, campaign season um, in early 2024. So I think this is really just about just trying to, like, you know, keep him, you know, uh, out of the... Uh, a campaign spotlight and uh, keep him just, you know, wrapped in these uh, legal, you know, 
entanglements for as long as possible. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it sucks. Sucks. Yeah, you know, I, I'm really starting to think that uh, these indictments are far bigger than just like Trump. Uh, I think it's far more mm-hmm. nefarious than just trying to harm or hurt Trump's chances in the election. I think that it's more than just like an attempt at vindication for finally making Trump out to be the villain uh, that they've suggested he's been for years. Uh, I think that this has more to do, and this is kind of reflected a little bit in the Federalist article that I have in the show notes that's titled The Purpose of the Trump Indictments is to Demonstrate the Left's Power. And basically it goes in, I'm not taking a little bit further than what even that article suggests, but I think that this is all about just trying to send a very clear message to anybody, Trump included, anybody that wants to try to disrupt the system in a Trump-esque way. And that message is very simple. You're playing with fire. And you're going to get burned if you're standing in our way. So like anyone that has this idea of like, well, I'm going to become president. I'm an outsider. I'm going to do stuff. I'm going to drain the swamp. No, no, no. You're not going to do that because you're going to get caught up in a million indictments, baseless, uh, um, you know, indictments like this, just like him. So the next person that wants to follow in Trump's footsteps are like, nah, you know what? I'm going to sit this one out. Linnea, what are your thoughts on all this? Well, I think you're absolutely right. And it's not a left and right thing either. I think that's become very obvious. I think that there is definitely a uniparty, which is that the people who have been entrenched, the the Bush people, the Clintons, all these families that have been coming up through politics together, the Kennedys even. Um, I know that people tend to like RFK right now, but he's got some I've got some questions about that guy. He seems to flip flop more than almost anyone I've ever seen uh, within the same day, even. So I don't really (laughs) understand the uh, adulation that he's getting. But um, I I, I don't think that it's just directed towards people who are thinking about running on a, you know, America first type of platform either. I think that it's directed at us, actually. I actually think that the... um, Uniparty, the overstate, the deep state, whatever you want to call it, I think that they are livid and they will never forgive people for voting for Trump. I think that they are absolutely infuriated that we would dare to vote for someone who the entire media establishment, the entire GOP major establishment, the DNC, everyone was um, working very hard to put down during his primaries uh, back in 2016. And I, I think that um, I think that they're mad at us, which is why you see it's not just the political level that has a, a, um, a very obvious imbalance in the justice system. It's also reaching down into our like the random civilian level. You see the stuff from uh, the FBI targeting Catholic churches. Um, you see stuff from the FBI targeting parents and uh, who dare to stand up against the kind of um, left-wing agenda in the schools. You see them targeting uh, pro-life protesters who aren't even, you know, doing any violence or anything. Um, we just had a court case come down about that, that you can't just, you can't allow BLM to burn the city down for months at a time and then prosecute no one and then go ahead and prosecute some people who are praying silently outside of a Planned Parenthood. Right, um, right. It's yeah, it, it's been I think that the message is for us, not necessarily for people who are running. Sure. Yeah. 
Well, Jim, I mean, we're 20 minutes into the podcast. I want to get into our main topics, but uh, since you're obviously very passionate about this, I'll give you final words. Uh, I'll just say that, you know, there's still um, a pretty good chance that uh, I think I think I saw that the they want to they want to start the trial in Georgia in March of yeah. 2024. So right yeah. right in the middle of the presidential campaign. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the United States government and the people of the United States used to be able to look down their noses at countries that um, had societies in which they would jail one of the popular candidates uh, to be president uh, of their country. And we now live in that country and we will now live well, in that country for the rest of our lives. And well, I, to me, I, that's that's pretty depressing. I've heard that they've got a new trial uh, system set up for him where they're just going to bring him to a cliff over the water and throw him off. And if he flies away, that hmm. means he's guilty. But if he sinks to the bottom, uh, you know, that means he's innocent. So I'm pretty sure that's what they're going with. That would be, a, that, would be that would make more legal sense than what they're trying to accomplish right now. <laughs> Here's one very interesting uh, compare and contrast. Uh, uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the mastermind of 9-11, is still not uh, on trial for his deeds of uh, 22 years ago. Donald Trump is going to immediately go to trial within weeks. Mm-hmm. Just, 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 you know, interesting. <laughs> right, right, right. All right, well, let's talk about some climate stuff. Uh, apologies in advance for the little monologue, but I did a lot of research last night into the Maui wildfires here. So this happened, Maui wildfires happened a little over a week ago. The scale of the tragedy is still revealing itself. I think the death toll has surpassed 100 people at this point. Really gut-wrenching stuff. And since the fire, we have been inundated with stories of the corporate media relating the fire to climate change or outright attributing the fire to climate change. In fact, the disaster is being used by climate activists as one of the primary justifications to push uh, um, the Biden administration to declare a climate emergency, which is the primary topic of this podcast. The story was covered pretty well in the last week's Climate Change Roundtable, the other flagship show of the Heartland Institute. Watch it live every Friday at noon Central Time. Anthony Watts explained how the fires were actually linked to poor land management. Maui used to be home to a number of sugarcane plantations. These sugar operations ceased in some cases as late as 2016. Uh, these fields were left barren until non-native savanna-type grasses took over uh, these large swathes of land. Also, the weather, pat- weather patterns of this time of year and the terrain of the islands leave that particular side of the island very, very dry. This makes wildfires particularly troublesome, and add to that the wind that the island experienced, some 60-mile-an-hour wind gusts, and you've got yourself a very deadly scenario. And this isn't just like a hindsight is 2020 thing either. I've got an article here from the Wall Street Journal titled, Hawaii officials were warned years ago that Maui's Lahana faced high wildfire risks. So it says here in the article, Nearly a decade before the wildfire destroyed the coastal Maui town of Lahana this week, killing at least 89 people. Again, we know that's more than 100 now. A report by Hawaiian fire researchers warned that the area was at extremely high risk of burning. In uh, in 2014, a wildlife protection plan for the area was written by the Hawaii Wildlife Management Organization, a nonprofit that works with the government agencies. It warned that Lahana was among Maui's most fire-prone areas because of its proximity to parched grasslands, steep terrain, and frequent winds. So, of course, 
you know, like any good government, these warnings went, uh, you know, they acknowledged them and, and took them to heart and did something about them. Now nah, I'm just kidding. They didn't do anything. So what actually started the fire? Was it arson? Was it a stray bolt of lightning? Was it space lasers? Well, it appears that this too may have been the result of neglect and incompetence. So new evidence suggests that the fire likely started from a downed power line in an aging and outdated energy infrastructure system. Attorney Michael Watts, no relation to Anthony Watts, has already filed a lawsuit against Hawaii's biggest power utility alleging gross negligence. According to Watts, Hawaii uh, Hawaiian Electric is not just responsible, and they weren't just negligent. They were grossly negligent by making conscious decisions to delay grid modernization projects that would have prevented this very tragedy. And apparently the company was very aware of this concern of potential wildfires. A funding request from last year cited the grid's risk of, quote, causing a wildfire ignition, uh, ignition is significant. The funding request was approved, but they allegedly didn't do anything to uh, fix the system at all. So there were uh, supposedly outdated power shutoff plans in place as well, which potentially left down power lines active and producing more fire for longer periods of time. So theoretically, the entire thing could have been prevented or at the very least heavily mitigated. But instead of anybody being held accountable or anybody looking into the problems that actually caused this issue, we're just going to sweep it under a giant rug. A rug that has the words climate change printed nice big letters across its entire face. That way we can use this tragedy to justify our political agenda. Doesn't that sound so much better than actually holding people accountable? Uh, in this context, the mainstream narrative focusing on nothing except for climate change is absolutely despicable. In fact, it's disgusting to me. But Linnea, you wrote on this as well. Uh, you you authored an op-ed. I'm not sure if it's even published yet, so people are getting a sneak peek no, I don't on think the whole <laughs> situation <laughs> in yet. Maui. But uh, feel free to add, fill in some gaps, or you know, concur with anything sure. that I just had. To well, say. And, well, and actually, even more information has come out. I I think that actually this power company is kind of getting thrown under the bus a bit mm. because while similar to PG&E, while they have not been updating, they have not potentially been clearing grass around their power lines the way they're supposed to or whatever. They've also had some environmental restrictions on how much of that they can do. Of course. Um, they also, report came out this morning that I have not been able to verify, but allegedly uh, part of the reason why none of the defensive sprinkler systems went off and the reason why the firefighters were not able to access hydrant water is because that part of Maui has a like an indigenous designed water conservation system where they say that they want to preserve and conserve water and not use it very much at all. Mm -hmm. And so um, apparently the government, the local government officials who are in charge of that system were withholding for as long as they could because they didn't want to have to dump a bunch of their fresh water, which they say is sacred or revered or whatever it is that they're saying. Um, so that's part of it. Um, in the past, it's been hard unless you are a wealthier uh, person that lives in that area, or you are one of the resorts, you're not necessarily watering your lawn as much as you could be. So people's oh, lawns yeah, were parched from recent drought. Uh, there was a very good analysis that was done, and I highly recommend people go read it on What's Up With That. Uh, and I think that we 
maybe reposted it to climate realism, although I'd have to check, uh, that describes exactly why Maui is so susceptible to fire. Hawaii is actually um, one of our most fire prone states. Wildfires happen all the time there, but they don't make the news because they don't have this kind of um, tragic effect usually. Mm -hmm. Uh, But this government, this let's back up for a second. Hawaii has one of the most corrupt state governments out of all of the states. They are absolutely bonkers with their like net zero stuff over there. Part of my op-ed's focus was saying that, you know, instead of doing the resilience work, you know, they say that climate change is happening and that it's going to cause more hurricanes, more wildfires, all this stuff. And they say this while also trying to prevent you from being able to put in place the kind of infrastructure that would make your town less susceptible to being destroyed by those kinds of events. So they're saying we're going to have worse everything in Hawaii. We've been in a drought for years on and off, although this spring was unusually wet and cool for them. Um, you know, it's we've been in drought. We have really bad you know, potential for fire. They've been giving fire warnings for years now in Hawaii. And yet what do they do instead of ramping up their defenses against fire? They pour money into a carbon tax. They pour money into green boondoggles. It's wildly irresponsible. The the minor, even if they believed that carbon dioxide was contributing to wildfire or was contributing to hurricanes, the tiny amount of atmospheric CO2 that they could save by cutting it in Hawaii by themselves is, I mean, it doesn't even factor into any calculation. The idea that they would pour their money into that instead of pouring money into clearing this uh, invasive flammable grass and planting native plants that are more resistant to fire. Because again, Hawaii is a naturally fire prone island. It does not normally catch fire into huge blazes on the areas that have more of their native plants. But like with California, they think eucalyptus are pretty from Australia. They bring those in, they plant them all over the place because they're decorative and they're cool looking. They are not native and they are highly flammable. Um, They bring in grasses for cattle, but then they get rid of the cattle ranching. So now these grasses are just growing all over the place instead of getting eaten down. It is a combination of decades of awful policy that led to this. And the media needs to stop letting the government get away with it. Even the conservative media is now pivoting and starting to blame Hawaii Electric instead of the government that made it harder for a company like Hawaii Electric to do what they needed to do. Yeah, you know, uh, well, first off, uh, I just got uh, word that Linnea is going to be indicted for saying bad things about the Hawaiian government. So get ready for that, Linnea. But um, (laughs) Chris, uh, if you have anything to say about Hawaii, feel free to jump in. But I do want to talk about the how this is being used to push for a declaration of a climate emergency. So you can either jump in, talk about Hawaii a little bit or have first whack at that. I think Linnea hit most of the major points. You know, I mean, I've been watching the coverage of this. I'll give you just, you know, a slight um, take on that. And um, as usual, you know, CNN and MSNBC have sent their correspondents there and they are, you know, live on the ground and they are just, you know, immediately pointing the finger at climate change without any evidence, without any proof. So I think it's far too early to play the blame game, you know, for, for anybody at this point. And, you know, really, I wish we would focus more on the devastation that uh, this you know, beautiful historic areas facing right now. And, you know, just 
completely, you know, like off topic, I guess. Uh, one of the things that I do find really, you know, nice about this is uh, that volunteers are going in there and people are donating tons of money and, you know, private charities are going in and doing, you know, what really needs to be done. FEMA has been, you know, late and, you know, obviously they're not going to be nearly as nimble on the ground as these, you know, private organizations are. So I would just, you know, say to our listeners, please, you know, try if you can help those people out because their lives have been completely destroyed. Right. Jim, and, you had a question? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I've, yeah. Linnea, for a couple things. One, I, in the chat, um, one of our, one of our viewers uh, mentioned uh, Chris Shattuck that said he, a lot of the problems with the plantations now is the use of eucalyptus, which is a huge user of groundwater with obvious consequences. Um, so I wonder if you could address that. And, uh, and two, you know, I, um, your colleague Sterling Burnett here, uh, who heads the Robinson Center on Climate and Environmental Policy here at Heartland Institute, uh, has been on a few radio shows in the last uh, week to 10 days. And uh, I grabbed a clip of that. And the headline I used for it when we posted it uh, as a podcast on our website was that humans, um, basically humans are to blame for uh, the, the wildfires in Hawaii, but not the way you think, <laughs> not the way you're being told by the media. And I had heard a rumor that Right, rumor, but I'd heard somewhere while listening to another podcast that when the firefighters got to some of the places to fight the fires and they hooked up to the to the uh, hydrants, that there was no water coming out. So uh, I don't know if you've seen that or heard that, but I think it just points to, if especially if it's true, it just points to how this disaster and it is horrific what happened. Uh, that humans are responsible for it, not climate change. And when and when you can respond to a fire but not have the tools to fight it and people die and property is completely destroyed, that is a human-caused disaster. Right. Well, and, and, you know, people will say climate change contributed X percent to the drought. Climate change contributed X percent to the hurricane that was passing by in the South, which the way that the media presents the hurricane's impact is usually a little bit incorrect. They suggest the way that they write it makes it sound like it was hurricane winds that were in the area, but it was not. It's actually um, normal east trade winds that were a little bit stronger than usual because of a high pressure zone um, to the east of Hawaii, to the east and north, um, were interacting with the very low pressure of the hurricane. And so it was creating this just zip line of super strong winds. And Hawaii naturally has a very strong wind uh, western slope of all of those little mountains. It's part of the reason why the western side of each of the islands is a little bit drier than the rainforest that tends to cling to the east. Um, it's just very interesting uh, natural uh, topographic weather patterns, I guess you could call it. Um, but no, I did hear the fire department would arrive at the scene Initially, they claimed that there were some grass fires on the uh, northern, more of the northern slope of the town, and they thought they had them contained. Um, they apparently were using water then, but then as stuff started to ramp up, they had not had the access to water anymore that they wanted in the past. And there's actually a, a wildfire that took place a while back there that they had tons of water that they dumped on this thing and put it out really fast. This was not the case. There seemed to be a major disconnect between the communications of different uh, departments in the area that were supposed to be able to coordinate for this sort of thing. Um, firefighters were not able to get water because they were trying to use some kind of a water conservation plan. The power company was not able, was getting conflicting information 
um, according to a statement that their vice president made um, that I inferred from the lawsuit some of the reports on the lawsuit that are going ahead is that they were being told that they needed to keep the power on so that the pumps could work to get water to places that they needed water to fight fires while they were also being told to shut down the power to turn the electricity off to keep it from sparking up new fires. Um, so there was some back and forth on that. I don't know how much of that is true, uh, but it sounds like government to me. Um, it, it's regardless of climate change, this was going to happen eventually. And their response to it appears to be so disjointed that they are just scrambling to lay blame on anyone else. It can't be the government's fault. It has to be the power company. It has to be climate change. And what I mentioned in my op-ed is that, you know, one of the grossest implications of this is that it is the local government, like the governor of Hawaii, is turning to people like you and me and saying, actually, it's your fault for driving a car. It's your right. fault for wanting air conditioning. Yep. That's who caused this fire. No, yeah. absolutely not. It is your fault, Mr. Governor, for having terrible priorities. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Terrible uh, public policy, terrible land management, all of these things, which, you know, you have to look into, you have to do a little bit of research, you might have to read a couple of articles that are, God forbid, a couple of years old to get some of this information. It's so much easier to just say climate change and move on because you're pushing an agenda. And yeah. that's more important than reality. It, it demonstrates the intellectual laziness that they are unwilling to, like you said, Donnie, do their due diligence and look and actually um explore other causes and obviously you know usually these things are very complicated and there's usually mul like multiple causes and it's not no nope, thing but it's change. so but it's so easy to just blame it on climate change and they they have just been you know just like they you know did with quote the big lie they just keep saying it again and again and again just trying to pound it into people's like brains right and it's you know to some degree unfortunately it is working because it was my niece's birthday and we were out to dinner and we were talking about this and most of the people that you know were at the table were just instantly you know blaming climate change and i did try to interject and say hey actually it's probably like three or four things we're not sure yet and you know they're just jumping to conclusions and i mean i, I don't know if they believe that or not but it's just it was just uh, you know frightening to some degree to just see how even among my family members who are you know they smart they watch the news but they just all automatically pounced on the climate change narrative because it's just been beaten into their heads right for, you gotta, for, it's, for more than a decade it's new information and you got to immediately put it into a box that fits your worldview climate mm -hmm. change is the answer boom i don't have to think about it anymore let's move on with my life and then exactly. a couple of weeks later when all of the actual details and and the tr the truth behind all of this comes out it's the equivalent of a correction on page 19 of the newspaper you know people have forgotten it and they're moving on to the next thing already it's climate change let's move on we got other things to talk about yeah remember, right. remember, remember those terrible fires in la a couple of years ago guess what that was started by arson and we know that that was started by arson yeah the, they the just fires they, in canada the fires in canada that too like, yes yeah no, so. nope climate change well, uh go uh, ahead just finish this off quick, but i want to move on to climate i want to i want to point out too it's very frustrating because they will use this now the entire media has now set set this fire up in a position to be used in the future as an example of how climate change caused disasters are getting worse or are getting more frequent so they can they can go back to the, the narrative that they created and claim that it's part of some data set and then of course you know i'm, I'm if it hasn't happened already i'm sure it will 
um, very shortly. But these climate attribution groups will come in. And what they do is they build a fictional model based mm -hmm. on what they imagine the climate would be like if humans had never come along and started burning fossil fuels. And they'll they'll simulate that those weather conditions in Maui for, for that day. And they'll say, hey, here's the percent likelihood that this would have happened without climate change. Or here's the contribution that climate change made to this event happening. But what they're doing is comparing basically two fictional scenarios to each other. And then they're saying this was caused by climate change. And then the media can refer back to those reports that are being generated with the intent in mind that they're going to show that it is caused by climate change. And they can say, this proves what we were saying. Mm. No, that's not how science works. That's fiction. That's making model. It's computer generated fan fiction for the climate alarmists uh, that they're referencing as fact. And yeah, it's right. terrible. You know, what the world, you know what the world would look like without the burning of fossil fuels? The Middle Ages. That's <laughs> yeah. what it would look like. It's, oh, sweet. it's also starting with an agenda and then trying to find the facts that fit the agenda instead of just right. coming in with an unbiased saying, we don't know what's what 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 sparked this, but we want to know. So we want to prevent that from happening in the future. And if they were to actually understand that, hey, maybe the power company played some role in this, maybe the introduction of these non-native grasses is a bad idea, then use that going forward to try to prevent this from happening. But when they just jump on the climate change bandwagon, that means that we're not going to learn from this and mm -hmm. we're not going to prevent future instances of this happening. So that to me is one of the, the truly saddest part of this, because, you know, more than 100 people are dead because of this. We right. need to we need to use this as a learning, as a lesson and learn from it. Right. But that's the thing, Chris. I don't think they want us to. Of course, I not. think I think they want these events to keep happening so they can keep using it as proof of climate change. I absolutely agree. As sick and twisted and grotesque as that is, I do agree. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. As I mentioned previously, you know, they're using this bogus narrative uh, to push for a declaration of a climate emergency. They want uh, Joe Biden to declare a climate emergency. And uh, it's despicable public officials and politicians as well that are calling for this. And a number of tweets of uh, from climate activists and politicians are using the Maui fire as justification uh, for Biden to call for a climate emergency. Some of these uh, despicable politicians include Ro Khanna and Ayanna Presley. Biden, in an interview with the Weather Channel, claimed that he already did basically declare a climate emergency. This isn't the case. And when pressed on this by uh, some other journalists, Biden said, well, I essentially did it already. The subtext of that meaning that he didn't actually do it. But uh, many think that he might be gearing up to do it pretty soon here. Anthony Watts on last week's Climate Change Roundtable seemed pretty sure that it was going to happen this week. I asked him yesterday about it. He said that it could very well happen on Monday when Biden visits Maui. He thinks the optics and the timing of that would be perfect for such a declaration. So what would it actually mean if a climate emergency is declared? It seems like no one really has a straight answer for this. So I've looked at a bunch of stuff. Articles on the left, articles on the right. I've seen some articles in The Hill, some things from CNN, some things from Grist magazine. And it seems that most can, can agree that a declaration would, one, allow the Biden administration to invoke the Defense Production Act to quickly allocate billions of dollars to renewable energy projects and other projects that relate to fighting against climate change. Number two, that it could uh, that Biden could use it to halt exports of fossil fuels and that he could also use it to suspend offshore oil drilling. Now, some suggest so that that's like the category that basically everyone agrees to. 
Some suggest that the declaration could allow the administration to halt all fossil fuel production and that Biden could force businesses to produce more clean energy or transportation technologies. And then some speculate that the declaration could even be used to limit travel, ration gasoline for vehicles and a whole bunch of other things like that. And I have two things to say about this, but I want to hear your thoughts on uh on kind of my first take before I get to my second one. But my first take is that even if you were to take out all the speculation and just look at the stuff that is likely, you're putting an incredible amount of power into the hands of the Biden administration. The power to radically change the state of the economy and the country. The power to hamstring reliable energy and put billions of dollars towards the creation of unreliable and costly energy sources. It's the power to reshape the energy sector to meet not the necessities of reality, but the fantasies of politicians and political activists. So, Jim, what are your what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on this? Uh, the potential powers of the Biden administration under a climate emergency declaration. Well, I mean the I mean the idea that uh, the Biden administration, of course, they want to grab more power. Um, I when when we pick this as the topic for today, I couldn't help but think of uh, a climate emergency is going to look a whole lot like the COVID emergency. And because the governments, not just here in the United States, state governments, local governments, they all just got power mad and decided that they, they could micromanage every aspect of your life. They could restrict your movement. They could lock you in your homes. I remember when COVID first started, um, you know, they said, well, you can only go to work if it's an essential business. Well, I consider the Heartland Institute an essential business. So I got in my car every day during COVID, during the during the two weeks to stop the spread and to everybody stay home and cooperate. We can get through this. I, I drove to work. Now, I don't have to drive very far, but almost every day I drove to work, I thought a cop might stop me and send me back home or might arrest me. For violating, uh, because I can't get to determine whether my business is essential. Um, that's something the government will figure out. And um, so it's this kind of arbitrary use of power that happened in COVID. We are going to get that when there's a climate emergency. Um, what's to, what? And if you think this is paranoia, or this is some kind of oh my gosh, here we go again, conspiracy theory. Show me the limiting principle of governments in this country that is supposedly free that were in operation during COVID. There were none. There were none. It was absurd. People's, people were arrested. Um, there was, what, what was that hairdresser down in Texas who was arrested for opening up her salon because she needed to keep earn money to support her family. Throw her in jail. So I, I have very high confidence that a climate emergency means that it's, it's open season on all of our liberty. Yeah, that actually ties into my second point, which is uh, why not speculate? Like, why shouldn't we uh, why should we not worry about the potential overreach of the administration under such a declaration? Have we witnessed anything over the past several years, especially during the covid years, that would make you think that the government would not overstep their authority in the name of a crisis? I mean, if we're facing an existential crisis, like we're being told endlessly, why not limit travel? Why not put rations on, on gasoline? Why is that off the table? Why would climate lockdowns not be off the table? Why would restrictions on other industries be off the table? 
Why would climate-focused restrictions on farming and the use of certain fertilizers like we've already seen in other countries be off the table? Why would anything be off the table if the potential consequence of inaction is death to humanity? So I think we should speculate, and I think that we should not assume that any of these people that could wield this much power would stop anywhere short of trampling all over your rights. So I think it's open season on speculation, but I know that's probably going to get us banned on YouTube, so we have to tread a little lightly here. But uh, I don't know. What do you think, Linnea? Feel free to jump in here. Oh, I think you're right. I think for the true believers, there is no line. But I also think for the people that are cynically using this as a power grab, there also is no line. So <laughs> we, we're really not in a very good spot here. If we like, if you like your freedom and you think that it's not worth giving up your freedom, even to save uh, humanity from, I guess, burning or boiling alive or whatever it is now. Um, uh, if you like your freedom, regardless of that, it's not going to work out for you. If you don't think that we're in an emergency and you also like your freedom, it's not going to work out for you. Um, for the people who are kind of neutral and questioning on this, I think there is a line that we will be able to walk up to that they'll tolerate. Um, but when things start getting really bad, they will tolerate it a lot less. Um, when you flip a switch and the power is off, uh, I know Texas ERCOT just put out a warning saying that there isn't enough wind right now and that in the next couple of days they're expecting to have uh, low power generation. So they're asking people to enter conservation mode in their homes. That's not going to be acceptable for long. Um, people will put up with the occasional blackout, I think. As that one, what was it? Los Angeles Times article wrote that was like, oh, we, might have that up, <laughs> we might have to put up with the occasional blackout to save the climate. Uh, that did not come off very well. People did not enjoy that article. Um, and there are a lot of pie in the sky types, even engineers who are like, no, 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 it's not that, you know, we'll definitely be able to maintain our current level of energy consumption on all renewables. Uh, we just have to, you know, do this and that other you know, magic technology that doesn't exist yet. Um, that's that's not going to work. Right now we're shutting down, we're beginning to shut down coal plants faster than we're putting any new generation technologies online. Um, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission says that that is a catastrophic idea. <laughs> they say that we are going to have extremely bad problems. But, you know, in terms of how do we solve this, I, I don't... I've, I've come across this idea and I, it's not going to happen, but I would get a kick out of it in a very dark, terrible way. Uh, and that's the idea of oil companies should just leave California. <laughs> right, right. They right. should, they should just say, okay, you don't want fossil fuels? Fine. And just shut them off. It will be really bad. Hospitals will not get power. I don't want any of that kind of stuff to happen, but man, what do they want? They want you gone. They want the product gone yeah right let's, so there's like this machiavellian <laughs> so there's yeah. this machiavellian feeling that i get that's like well then fine give them what they're asking for right Take, right send climate them, emergency let, on we're turning off yeah. the switches let, yeah. let california have their you know pre-industrial <laughs> living situation if they want it yeah break out fine. the typewriters that, that's yeah, yeah, write yeah. all your hollywood scripts on those for now on yes yeah, so right. not writing stop nothing all, right now stop yeah. all the gasoline trucks from from crossing the border into yep. california 
yeah, yeah. just don't deliver the the gasoline anymore. It's this it's, it's this evil product that's killing everybody, and we don't want to get sued and uh, sued out of oblivion. So you know what? We're just going to stay out of California. Yeah, well, that's right. the amazing thing. You know, these like this commenter just said, shut off fossil fuels. The whaling would be exquisite. It would be exquisite. It would be very bad. Um, the oil companies, in theory, and I'm not a union person. <laughs> And I'm not a um, a striking kind of person, but in theory, the oil companies, if they're getting fed up enough, could go on strike. What would that look like internationally? I mean, even if just the United States companies decided, you know, what, we're just going to walk away from the refineries for a couple of days. What would that look like? Mm -hmm. I don't think people have any concept of how bad that would be. I think you're describing the plot of Atlas Shrugged, if I'm not mistaken. But uh... yeah, I, I am. I am. But I'm just in the that was with the railroads, right? Um, I'm just saying it's well, you the, know, guy, the guy they're, burns, they're pushing, burns down his uh, oil point. refinery in the, in the yeah. end of Act Two. But then, uh, yeah. Chris, thoughts on declaring the climate emergency what do you think am i going too far over the cliff here in my absolutely you are so far gone i can't even begin to describe it no i am going to play devil's advocate on purpose because okay, I, go ahead I want here, to here's it. why here's why because uh joe biden's approval rating is in like the mid-30s there's absolutely no way he's going to do this before the 2024 election because hey guess what Americans are already struggling just to make ends meet. Gasoline is going back up again. If he were to, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, 419, I thought I thought Biden four nineteen a gallon here in uh, you know in the in the <laughs> Chicago suburbs and climbing. Uh, OPEC just announced that they are going to shut off the spigot, which is going to make oil prices go up even more. So if Biden, right now, a year out from his potential reelection, were to do this, it would guarantee that he loses in the biggest landslide in the history of presidential elections in the United States. I guarantee that because the American people would just say, are you insane? Like right now, given the economy, you're going to do this. So I think if he does win, which I really hope not, but you know, I'm becoming a little concerned as the days go by that this might actually happen. I would, I would very much think that he would do this within the early days of his second uh, term mm. because he wouldn't have any price to pay. He wouldn't care. But right now, I think that he, you know, he did a lot of stuff early on, cutting, you know, eliminating Keystone Pipeline and just all the stuff that he's done so far. And I think that they were like, whoa, OK, now we got to like, you know, just take our foot off the gas a little bit here. Let, you know, like let these things, you know, uh, happen. And then if he's reelected 2024, I would more than expect this to happen. But I yeah, do you know not I do not think it's going to happen before the campaign. So I, I tend to agree with you. And I understand that, like, um, you know, all the stuff that we're speculating about, like him doing any and all of that would definitely be a, um, a detriment to his reelection campaign or anything. However, what I could see, like any government thing, you, you stick the camel's uh, nose underneath the tent a little bit. We declare an emergency and we just do it so that we can push through all of these uh, green energy programs, which guess what are going to bring all these high paying jobs and all of that. And then slowly over the course of the next couple of years under the same declaration, we just start putting more and more restrictions and more and more uh, different rules and all of that in place. And we don't have to worry about declaring something. We already did that. That happened a little bit ago. You know, I also now we could just keep turning up the, 
the uh, the burner underneath that boiling pot of water. I also assume that uh, states with Republican uh, district attorneys would sue on this, you know, in an instant. And I don't think the Supreme Court would uphold this. So I don't I don't know if there's precedent for this. The COVID, you know, the COVID emergency stuff was, you know, on shaky legal ground to begin with. Some states just flouted it. Others didn't. But if he were to say that the entire United States is going to have to uh, forsake fossil fuels because of his, you know, climate dreams, I just think that the American people would not comply at all. And I'd be one of them. Yeah, well, the uh, I, I want to talk about this paper because uh, I already mentioned that we were going to talk about it. So I want to talk about this paper a little bit. So what would it, what would we even need to do to achieve net zero carbon dioxide emissions? The ultimate goal of the climate activists. Commit, well, commit, commit mass suicide. <laughs> well, that's one way of doing like it. Like literally every single person on Earth. Yeah, no, I'm not kidding. It's one way of doing it. Well, a new no, report... it's the only way of doing it. <laughs> Net zero. Um, okay, we'll just comment aside. Uh, well, a new report from the Institute for Energy Research released just a week ago looks at exactly that. Not the mass suicide thing, but uh, achieving net zero. The report is titled The Challenges and Costs of Net Zero and the Future of Energy. So in this paper, they write, quote, absent unforeseeable technological breakthroughs, likely nothing short of a massive reordering of society uh, uses energy will be required. Energy, uh, society uses of energy. I don't know. Maybe I'm mistyped that achieving any of uh, the net zero pathways requires heroic assumptions about land use coal use sales of electric vehicles and construction of new generation and infrastructure achieving any of these um, assumed targets values require ma uh, massive unprecedented and rapid change hitting net zero would require all of these unprecedented targets to be achieved the paper concludes that we simply do not have the physical resources needed to produce the renewable energy products we need, and that pursuing this course of action would A, uh, wouldn't achieve the desired outcome, and B, would be ruinous to the economy. So, uh, you know, we're talking about, um, uh, um, uh, well, according to the report, it says aggregate GDP drops $7.7 trillion, unemployment shortfall averages one2 uh, million jobs annual average annual household electric bills increases eight hundred and forty dollars and gasoline prices rise two hundred and thirty six percent and that's just getting to the halfway point of net zero and uh yeah guess what even if we killed ourselves doing all of this uh it wouldn't mean much because china alone produces two to three times more co2 than the united states so uh jim i mean like these ideas, achieving net zero, all we have to do is create some wind and solar or whatever. Like you look at these papers and this is like a 60 page paper, really in depth. Look at all of this stuff. And it's just like, no, that's fantasy. It's not even possible. Like how does how does this how does this agenda still have legs? It's un unbelievable to me. Donnie, this is coming from the people who are the party and they believe in science. You're, <laughs> you're the science denier here. Yes. See, they're, they're the ones who believe in, in science and, in, and they believe in engineering too, I guess. It, it's obviously I'm being facetious. This is completely magical thinking. I mean, we, we've talked about this 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 attempt to go to net zero on this podcast and on our climate change roundtable show on Fridays and on the environment and climate news podcast, which is put out regularly by the Heartland Institute. We talk about this a lot and it's it's trying to let people 
understand what are the real world um, ramifications of even attempting to accelerate the goal of net zero. It is widespread misery. It will kill billions of people on this planet because without energy, hospitals can't operate. Without reliable energy, uh, you know, power plants can't, you can't power cities on coal. I'm sorry, you can on coal. You can't, you can't power them on wind and solar. The, the people who are pushing net zero are not scientists. They're not, they're not actually even rationally thinking people at all. They are cult members. They are, they are sitting around and they just have this faith that we can get there if we just wish it, if we pray to Gaia and we wish it hard enough, we can make this happen. We, you hear our politicians, and sometimes I wonder if they really believe this, or even worse, they're, they're members of their actual members of the cult, say that the only thing holding us back is that we don't invest enough money in these sorts of things. And you can tell them, like this, uh, this paper you just cited, Donnie, that we we don't have we don't have enough copper for the transmission lines. We have children, slave labor in Africa, digging up the cobalt that you need for these batteries. We don't have the battery technology, even if wind and solar worked great and it works horribly, even if you could store all the energy that is being produced by those very inefficient energy sources and put them into batteries. We don't have the technology to do that. We don't have enough minerals to make the batteries to do it in theory. It's, it's all insane. And that's because, you know, I, you have to come to the conclusion, like I have, I would think, that the pain and the misery and death is the is the end goal. Right. Because net zero, it, that's the only thing that will result from this. People will die. Societies will crumble. And if you wanted to do it, this is the best way to make it happen. Well, I, I think the key the key words in this report were right right at the beginning when it was uh, talking about how like nothing short of a massive reordering of how society operates uh, would be sufficient. So like that's that's the thing, and that's like a through line that I've seen in a number of reports and, and articles that stick out to me. Even when we like back when we talked about Michael Schellenberger and his push for uh, uh, nuclear energy as like the solution to to climate change or something like that, and it was basically like, yeah, but the left won't do it because that wouldn't require a massive reordering of society. So like that's right. That's the key to all of this. You know, that's the that's the real agenda for all of this. Uh, that's what needs to be done to stave off a real climate change, quote unquote, under their kind of rhetoric. But Linnea, talk about this report. And then there's one last thing I want to talk about before we sign off for the week. It's hard to get people to, especially people who are kind of ideologically aligned with the environmentalists, um, the, as far as the environmentalists have gone at this point, to not judge things like the Inflation Reduction Act or um, gr green policies in general by their words, but by their fruits. Um, the fruits of these policies is that not only have they not reduced carbon dioxide uh, emissions, they also have resulted in higher energy prices across the board, less efficient energy and less reliable grid, um, you know, supply. So this report pretty much says what I've seen before. I read a report a couple of years ago that just focused on what it would take to make every single car in the UK electric. And they said that for that, there is not physically enough copper on the planet to do it. <laughs> and that's just to make every car in the British islands electric. Um, so I don't know 
where people are getting the numbers for other stuff. Although I am a little bit skeptical sometimes when people say, you know, there's not enough X material on the planet. Um, that's just by usually by economic judgment. Um, but I do believe that they're probably right about this one um, in terms of, you know, how much more expensive it's going to become as the resources developed. Yeah, right. right. So it's, man, <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy stuff. But, you know, how is the average student in school who's, you know, skipping school to go protest? Definitely <laughs> because they care very much about it, not because they just want to skip school. Right. But, um, you know, they do probably care about it to a certain extent. And a lot of them have been terrified into believing it. But where are they going to go that will tell them the fact that it's physically impossible to do what they're asking to do. Just Stop Oil is asking for a leave it in the ground policy. Mm -hmm. Where do where do they honestly, you know, and if you ask them, where are you going to get your like plastics and stuff? And they'll say, oh, well, you can make clothing out of hemp. Oh, man. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> they, don't, they don't. And I talked about this last time I was on the, in the tank and the last time I was um, on Climate Change Roundtable, too, is that a lot of people um, analyze these policies in a vacuum individually. They say this policy here will work. This policy here will work. They don't combine them to look at what that looks like. How are you going to make clothing out of hemp when all the farmland is already taken up by <laughs> the extra farmland that you need to grow food because you've banned fertilizer yeah. and the extra farmland that you need to use for wind and solar because they're the most land hungry energy sources out there? Where are you going to find the room to grow hemp? Right. <laughs> you know, it's like they're not thinking about these policies in conjunction. They're thinking about them on islands by themselves. Sure. Exactly. And it sounds peachy keen then, but it's not going to work. Well, e e even if you did what Michael Schellenberger advocates going nuclear, massive ramp up in nuclear, um, how are you going to, and, and you electrify everything, what's going to power the heavy equipment you need to dig up the minerals you need, like uranium <laughs> and, yeah. and all, well, the, all, the, all the minerals you need for batteries. How are you going to power electric heavy equipment how right. are you going to you know are you going to make um every shipping you know enormous ship with all the shipping containers you're going to make those like nuclear submarines and have them all nuclear powered no no wind sails oh thanks so. uh, no, but, that but even even so the the <laughs> nuclear option in that case um nice <laughs> that that nuclear design i mean it's good nuke is very good for some baseload power but it actually can't ramp up and down as fast as fossil fuels can when it comes to um, variable power desires. You know, like if you all of a sudden need a ton more power because there's a big cold snap, nuclear can't always ramp up fast enough to take care of that. But coal and natural gas can. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and this ties into the last thing I wanted to kind of uh, rant about, which is uh, just the fact that wind and solar suck. And that's what makes all of this even more just like annoying to me is that, I mean, we've dedicated entire episodes to this idea that wind and solar suck. Okay, well, solar sucks, wind blows. But I mean, we've talked about this, right? Like we've talked about how much more expensive they are compared to reliable energy sources. We've talked about how unreliable wind and solar is. Uh, we've talked about how much land is needed to, to do these things at scale from the installations themselves to the new power lines that are needed to transport the power to where people live, all requiring land that nobody wants uh, built uh, built on. You know, it's the, the vacant land myth idea. The sheer amount of rare earth materials needed to build these solar panels and wind turbines that are needed uh, and for the, the battery backups as well. 
rare earth materials that we rely on China for, by the way. We've talked about the fact that uh, wind turbines and solar panels have lifespans of fewer than 20 years and quickly begin dropping in efficiency in basically half that time. Uh, we've also talked about how these uh, solar panels and, and wind turbines that are replaced, they can't just be recycled or thrown out. Wind turbines are buried in gargantuan landfills, and solar panels are filled with toxic material like lead and cadmium, which can't just be disposed of, uh, or else you know broken panels could leach this material into the ground and groundwater. There's just like endlessly, just like a whole heap of like arguments against or, or evidence showing uh, that wind and solar are terrible. Yeah, well, but Donnie, you know what? I'm going to give you the biggest, biggest argument for it. Money. Because, hey, guess what? There's trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars that is being handed out by the United States government with all these bipartisan infrastructure and the Inflation Reduction Act and all this stuff. And guess what it's going to? It's going to these green energy companies. And hey, guess what? They're connected to people in the administration. Jennifer Granholm had a big connection to that Proterra bus company that just went bankrupt after it got <laughs> hundreds of millions of dollars in subsidies and uh, secured loans by the U.S. government, courtesy of the Bipartisan uh, Infrastructure Act. So guess what? Really, this is all about money. Oh, yeah. And I know, and I know that the people, oh, you're crazy. This is not about, yes, it is. It's about money. Yeah. Guess what? Yeah. Nucle nuclear is not a emerging technology in which people can invest in it and, and make tons of money. Same with fossil fuels. That's been there, done that. But guess what? Solar panels and electric vehicles and charging stations and, you know, all the, all this stuff requires so much money. Yeah. Yeah. Do you who agrees with you that that real terrible you. conservative guy Michael Moore, right? Such a oh, yeah, yeah, such yeah, a yeah, conservative, right? Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. Well, you the know whole what? point of Plan of the Humans was exactly that point. Absolutely. Go ahead, Linda. you know what just you know what just struck me though. I think one of the reasons why wind and solar are the ones that they go for because look at the lifespan of a coal or a exactly. nuclear plant. Exactly, these things last for many many decades i mean 60 years or so 30 years the new uh power uh, nuclear unit that just went up in georgia has a lifespan of like 30 years before they have to do updates you right. do some updates you get it back online it's more or less okay wind and solar are almost like a single-use plastic of energy right yeah these things break all the time and they have to be replaced, to be replaced. all right. the time and then you so this stuff is a huge money maker and, for that reason and all the infrastructure that's needed the transmission lines and just all this stuff this is just a humongous money making scam Donnie, well, I, I, I mean I, I hate to say this but these people are not in it for the you know for the heartfelt commitment you know for the most part there are there are the true believers of course the people who are going and protesting and doing all this crazy stuff but it's the people who are driving them to do that it's the people who are peddling the lie that if we oh, don't I, do this oh, the I world is going to end and I don't, I don't hate to say it. I'm glad to say it. Oh, uh, yeah. Absolutely. But, but, I mean, it's just I, I know it's super cynical, but I think that it's just follow the money. Yes. There is Al well, Gore. Al Gore has made so much money off of peddling this whole global warming lie for decades now. And he sold he sold his company to Al Jazeera. It's like, just give me a break. Like, come on. Yeah, well, so I go over that list of all the terrible things about wind and solar, but we have a couple more to heave on top of the pile. So the first comes from a new documentary called Thrown to the Wind. The documentary reveals how offshore wind industry is directly related to an ongoing trend of whale and dolphin deaths on our coasts. Apparently, 
sound vibrations from the wind turbines and the vessels related to the uh, the wind offshore wind industry are sending these animals off course and harming them in one way or another. And, you know, I, I know that there is speculation uh, about this and uh, it seemed that somebody identified a correlation between offshore wind projects and, you know, these whale deaths. But this documentary seemingly identifies a causation link. And then the other thing that I want to throw in there, because we are going long, um, is that, uh, you know, we've been told for a while that the cost of wind and solar are going to fall over time. And to those that told us that's credit, the price decreases in the early days of this technology was pretty steep. But these cost decreases have slowed down substantially over the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years or something like that. And that was highlighted by a report by the, I think, the Manhattan Institute several years ago that explained how the days of tenfold increases to efficiency for wind and solar are over. Well, lately, not only has the cost of wind and solar completely stopped dropping, it actually has been increasing. A report by the International Energy Agency has shown that the cost of wind and solar projects has increased by 10 to 15 percent over the last three to four years. The report attributes the increase to a number of factors, including high commodity prices, high inflation and other various macroeconomic and ge geopolitical risks that are going on around the world. So. So it seems like these costly, unreliable energy sources are becoming even more costly and even more unreliable. But you know what? Let's attach the entire structure of our society to them. That seems like a great idea. The but, reason uh, why, though, is because they're not operating in a free market and they're being subsidized to the moon by the U.S. government and other governments. So there is no competition. There's no free market. There's no incentive for them to actually you know, become cheaper, more affordable and more reliable. A situation that'll get problem. worse with the declaration of a climate emergency as well. Because like, like I said, you know, that just opens the administration's a wallet to be able to just pour billions of dollars into these things in the form trillions, of trillions, tiny billions. That is so <laughs> yesterday. Come on, man. Come Good on. Point. Come Good on. Point. Have you ever seen Austin Powers? Come on. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The poor hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, Linnea, yeah. Jim, we're 15 minutes over. Got any final words about any of the topics we've discussed so far on this podcast? Yeah, I'll let Jim have the last word, but I just thought of a really good op-ed topic that is going to come your way, Chris, <laughs> and nobody better steal it. But I think that we can make a, a very uh, kind of tongue-in-cheek comparison between wind and solar and the fast fashion industry. Um, it's it. trendy, takes up a ton of space. And it's made with slave labor. <laughs> <laughs> yes. What's not to love, yeah? Yeah, great, great. All right, Jim, final words. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to uh, play a, a recent endorsement we got for the podcast here for all of our uh, viewers and listeners. So here we go. Guys, oh, sweet. Do not listen to the In the Tank podcast. It is a dangerous show of dangerous men with some dangerous malarkey. And I do not stand for it. All right, where's my vice president, Condoleezza Rice? <laughs> oh, is that Thanks, Joe. Joe. Is that the Thanks, big man? Bro. Is that the big man? The Sweet. big guy. The big guy. Big guy. All right. Um, all right. Fantastic. Well, thank you all for tuning into this week's episode of the In the Tank podcast. Join us every week for a new episode. Like I said at the beginning of the episode, those audio only listeners that are catching the show on a Friday or later, uh, first off, leave a review for us on iTunes. That'd be greatly appreciated. But you could also join us a day earlier on Thursdays at noon central time where we're streaming this live on Facebook and YouTube and Rumble and Twitter and all of that and you can join the conversation throw your comments and questions in the chat maybe we'll show your comments on the screen maybe we'll address your questions on the fly super chat functionality is a way to support the show but you can also support the show 
by not spending a dollar, but spending a couple of seconds by hitting that like button, sharing this content, subscribing if you haven't already, or just leaving a comment under the video. All these things break through those big tech algorithms and prevent content like this from being shown to more people. Also, if you'd like, you can follow us on Twitter at InTheTankPod, or you can send us your comments, questions, and suggestions for the show by emailing us at InTheTankPodcast at gmail.com. Jim Lakely, where can the fine people find you? At Jay Lakely on Twitter, at Heartland Inst on Twitter, and always visit heartland.org. Uh, Linnea, same question. All right, at Linnea Lucan at Twitter. Um, let's look at energy at a glance.com, climaterealism.com, and Climate Change Roundtable, Fridays, noon central. Fantastic. Chris Talgo, what do you have to pitch today? Stoppingsocialism.com got some really good new content up there. Please check it out. Fantastic. All right, everyone. Talk to you next week. What we should really do right now is just sit around and talk about all the times back in the day when, when me and, and Barack would run around the hallways of the White House with, with candies and we'd, we'd snip the kids' hairs as we gave them candies. And-